So Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. And I will read that out for us and then we will begin. So Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 to 8. This is God's word. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God would choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. This is God's word. For most of us growing up in an Australian context, meals didn't have and still don't really have a lot of significance attached to them in terms of having a meal that points to something significant, whether it be an event or a figure or person. Um, If your upbringing was anything like mine, it wouldn't be often, if ever at all, that you would have a meal and the meal would be symbolic of something that uh, was much greater and worthy of your attention and devotion at that time. I think the closest thing we come to here is probably Christmas time, where we have a meal together, we get together with friends and family. But scarcely, even for, unfortunately, a lot of Christian households, it would be rare at that meal to actually stop and pause and say, let's talk about the incarnation. Let's talk about God taking on human flesh, being born in a manger as a baby. I mean, God being smaller than Eleora, my daughter, at one time God was a baby in Jesus Christ. Just thinking about that, so great was his love that he would take on human flesh and be born in such humble circumstances. And I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so we certainly weren't going to talk about that. But for a lot of Christians, unfortunately, we don't have a meal time where we actually take a moment and reflect upon something and where the meal itself is actually symbolic of a greater reality. But for the people of Israel, for thousands and thousands of years, this has been common practice where there were many meals that they would have and particularly one significant meal called the Passover that we're gonna go over today, where it was a time not simply to eat and socialize with your family and friends, but to reflect upon what God had done and where what you were eating, the food itself was actually symbolic of particular aspects of that act of deliverance, of that event. So this is a, an incredible um, 
thing for us to be going over because it's very unusual for us to actually have a meal um, where we stop and take the time and actually say this meat, this lamb, you know, we don't often have a barbecue and say, well, this snag refers to like the time we were freed from somewhere. It just doesn't happen. Whereas for the people of Israel, this was common practice for them. So we're going to jump into the life of really an an Israelite 3,500 years ago and jump into this Passover where in Deuteronomy 16, but I'm going to use this as more of kind of a launching pad to look more at Exodus 12 and some other events where um, we have the Passover detailed because Deuteronomy chapter 16 is really more of an abridged version of how they are to celebrate the Passover when they enter into the promised land. And in Exodus, the book of that, that details the people's Exodus, you have... Uh, God specifically saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. I'm about to free you from Egypt and you're going to have this meal for the very first time and it's going to be something that stays with you every year and you're going to have it to remember this very night that I deliver you from Egypt. So we're going to look at the background of uh, the Passover meal before we then look at the details of the Passover. So if we go back Around about 3,500 years ago, the people of Israel are in the land of Egypt, in captivity. They're under increasingly harsh slavery. The Pharaoh there has an ice cold heart and he is increasing their slavery. And finally, the cries of the people are heard by God. And he comes and he appears to this man, Moses, and says, hey, I'm going to free my people. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to go to Pharaoh and uh, with your brother Aaron after Moses says, I can't actually talk. I'm not a man of eloquent speech. And so God says, okay, take your brother along and you two will both go. And you're going to speak to Pharaoh and say that I want my people to come and worship me and you'll let them go. And of course, over time, God has to send these plagues that are increasing in their severity. And you go through nine plagues and Pharaoh every time hardens his heart. And finally, the 10th plague is about to happen. So God says to Moses, right, one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And after that, I will let my, he will let my people go. And this plague is going to be the killing of every single firstborn human and animal in the land of Egypt. It's going to be a very severe plague. And it's at this point where we have God instituting the Passover. So kind of God saying, I'm, I'm going to kill every firstborn. And I also want you to celebrate a meal in commemoration of this for years to come. And this is where we have Exodus chapter 12, where God institutes this Passover meal for his people. So in Exodus 12, God begins by saying, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So if you hadn't already known, God wants the calendar of his people, the calendar of Israel, to begin with the Passover. This was so significant to their history that he actually wants their whole calendar to begin commemorating this event. So this is going to be the start of the year. It's the equivalent to a New Year's festival for the people is celebrating the Passover. 
And from verses 3 to 6 in Exodus 12, God gives the instructions for how they are to celebrate the Passover. So in this passage, in Exodus 12, God explains that they are to take a one-year-old lamb without blemish, and they are to actually keep it for several days. And the word for keep, so in the NIV, it actually says they are to take care of it because it kind of carries this idea of actually caring for the animal. It's not just like keeping it out in the, the paddock. They're actually to care for it so that, so that it would remain unblemished, ready to be sacrificed. Now, I uh, grew up as an animal lover and I could just never, like I apologize to spiders when I kill them. It's very weird, but I just, am, that's the household I was brought up in. And I don't know, uh, you may have been quite different, but whether you were or weren't, have you ever actually seen a, a one-year-old lamb and looked at it? And just look at how innocent it looks. It's just a beautiful little lamb and they're told to slaughter it. And that's part of the point, right? That to take it into their house, maybe even name it, I don't know. But the point is that they're to take this lamb, this beautiful little creature. It would have been totally different if they had like tarantulas at that time. You take a tarantula in, well, that would have been much easier to, to slaughter. But this, this lamb without blemish, and the, the point of it is to feel the weight of the life you are taking. It's costly. It's difficult. It's a huge sacrifice. And so after they, had a, to, they, they take this unblemished lamb in, they slaughter the lamb each in their household. And once they have killed it, they take the blood and they cover it on the, the door posts and the door frames. The lintels are probably the entranceway of the house. So it's basically just covering the entranceway to their house. You cover it all with blood. And if we skip down to verse 13 of Exodus 12, God then explains why they need to do this. Because here, in Exodus 12, verse 13, God says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, which is, of course, where we get the name Passover. Because he sees the blood and he passes over them. The destroyer passes over and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So notice it is the blood of the lamb that averts really the wrath of God. Later on in verse 23 of chapter 12, we read God actually saying it's the destroyer that is going to come, whom, whom God sends to kill the firstborn. And it's specifically the blood that averts that for the people. So it wasn't specifically any good in and of the people themselves. Like God could have just said, I'm going to take the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And then when that happens, um, it will coincide with my departure. He specifically says to cover your household with the blood. So presumably anyone, even an Egyptian, could have been in that house and God would have passed over. Because it actually had nothing to do with the people, but everything to do with the blood that was covering the people. It was the blood of the lamb as the sign which God says, when I see that, I will pass over and no one will be destroyed in that household. So as the people have the blood over the entranceway of their houses, then they had to celebrate this meal. They had to take this Passover meal. And the Passover meal then, and still to this day in a lot of communities, 
looks very similar. It has three particular elements that you must have for the Passover meal. And you read this in Exodus 12 verse 8. There's three particular elements. There's the lamb, there's the unleavened bread, and there's the bitter herbs. And there are other things that were added on, like there would have been wine that went with it, some other elements. But those are the three core ingredients. And you have the lamb, which is supposed to be roasted over the fire, not boiled. And the lamb is, of course, symbolic for the need for a sacrifice. And that's where the blood comes from to cover the household. And then you have the, the matzah, which is the unleavened bread, which is symbolic. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see of um, the need for sin to be purged in the community. Leaven is always a sign of sin. But here in particular, it's actually symbolic of the hasty departure because unleavened bread. And we actually today will take the Lord's Supper with my wife Jasmine made some unleavened uh, damper, basically, like Australian damper. So there's no yeast in it. And it's very quick. I um, shouldn't try and... Um, have you guys believe that I actually know what I'm talking about with this? It's all jasmine that actually um, bakes, but I have some understanding to know that yes, usually with bread you have yeast and it takes a long time to actually for the dough to rise. Whereas with no yeast, you can make damper quite quickly. It only takes about half an hour. And they are to eat this unleavened bread because it's supposed to be symbolic of the haste, of the sense of urgency which God delivered them from the land of Egypt. And then they had to have the bitter herbs, which symbolizes the years of harsh slavery, the bitterness in that land that they are to remember, which should then lead them to gratitude when they realize what God had saved them from. And so the people receive these instructions here to annually remember this time, to always remember this time where uh, God delivered his people from the land of Egypt, where he actually passed over them because of the blood. And this Passover meal, as I said, has continued 3,500 years later. But about 1,500 years after this very first Passover, we have an event, the biggest event in all of human history, which helps us see the Passover with a new lens. So almost 1,500 years after the very first Passover, we see what the Passover was really always pointing to. So what was this meal always pointing to? I think we lose a large amount of significance of this because we're not in a Jewish context and we're just so far away from the first Passover. And if you've grown up in Sunday school, you know the Sunday school answer. It's pointing to Jesus and you're right. But there's something else, there's more to it, there's more layers to this when we look closely at the original Passover and when we see particularly how Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we take at the meal of the Passover, how he institutes that. And we see very clearly how Jesus fulfills the Passover. But when we see this from the Jewish context and from what Jesus says, celebrating the Passover with his disciples and instituting the Lord's Supper, it should fill us with awe and reverence as we see how perfectly Christ fulfills the Passover lamb, how perfectly he comes and his blood covers us. So if you can, just imagine with me being in a Jewish context a little bit over 2,000 years ago. You're brought up in a Jewish context where every year 
your new year festival, the start of your year, would be this meal of the Passover. And you would celebrate this meal. It would be a huge time. There would be a lot of preparation that would go into it. You would see this young, unblemished lamb sacrificed, lamb that maybe you cared for, and the blood and the meal would point you back to this time that you had heard about where your ancestors were freed from harsh slavery, where God incredibly delivered the people and buried Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and did all of these incredible events. And it was centered around the blood of the lamb. And you would hear the same questions asked every meal. So later on in Exodus 12, we actually read about how God wants children or he expects children to ask questions. Like, what does this meal represent? So what do you mean by this service? And God specifically says, you will answer the children. This meal represents when Yahweh, when the God of Israel, the God of your ancestors, freed your people from Egypt. And years go by. You would celebrate this every year. And you would also, because you're a good Jewish boy or girl, you would know passages like Isaiah 53 that point forward to this servant, this Messiah figure who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And this servant figure was described like a lamb led to the slaughter. And you would read these passages because you haven't been... um, tarnished by smartphones, you would actually have a good memory that could remember probably the whole book of Isaiah, the whole scroll of Isaiah. So you would know these things. You would know the story in Genesis of Abraham, the great father of your nation who was going to offer his son. But what happened in place of his son? God said, no, 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 I will provide a lamb in his place. And so the lamb is slaughtered instead of Isaac. And imagine you're in this context and then picture yourself on the banks of the Jordan River. And there is this very manly man called John the Baptist who's baptizing people. And you see him and this other figure approaches John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, the first thing he says when he looks at him is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you hear that and you just have these images come back of the lamb of the Passover and this lamb that would be led to the slaughter. And now this this John the baptizer who's paving the way for the Messiah looks and he says, the lamb, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, he's here. The true lamb, the one we've been waiting for when we celebrate every year. The true lamb has come. The lamb who goes in our place. Just like instead of Isaac being sacrificed, the lamb comes. Jesus comes as this Passover lamb who is about to be sacrificed, have his blood poured out in order that the people's sins might be truly covered. Not have to do this year after year, but truly covered by the blood of the lamb and truly freed from slavery. And we see how Jesus fulfills this even more in Luke 22. Um, If you do have your Bibles, turn to Luke 22, where we read about how Jesus uh, fulfills the Passover. So this is where Jesus, right before he is about to be led to the cross, Jesus celebrates the Passover, which he would have done year after year. 
as a Jewish boy. And he celebrates the Passover this last time. And in Luke 22, we read about this. And from verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, his closest friends, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. It's literally him saying, I have desired with a desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus eagerly desires to eat this Passover meal with his closest friends and followers because he knows it is to fulfill what the Passover was always pointing to, for God to completely cover the people with the blood of the Lamb, to completely free them from slavery to sin. It's pointing to the kingdom of God because Jesus, as the king who brings the kingdom, he brings it by actually dying in the place of his people. And so the Passover finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God because King Jesus brings about the kingdom of God through his sacrificial life, death and resurrection. And from verse 17, we read about Jesus taking a cup. Now, this cup would have been the same cup that the people would have taken with the Passover meal year after year. The wine was always an accompaniment to the meal of Passover. So Jesus was just celebrating the Passover as normal. And as he's celebrating the Passover, he takes the cup and he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. And then in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then after this, he takes the bread, the unleavened bread, the same bread of the Passover. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes the same elements of the Passover. He's not creating something entirely new. He's actually celebrating the Passover, taking the same elements, but he gives new meaning to them. He gives a fresh lens. So the bread of the Passover, which always symbolized the hasty departure, the unleavened bread always symbolized how quickly, how urgently they needed to be freed from that. Jesus takes this and says, this is my body given for you. So instead of the bread simply being symbolic for that hasty departure and freedom from slavery, it's actually pointing to the freedom from the slavery of sin that we have where Jesus steps in our place and his body is hung on the cross to free us ultimately from our slavery to sin. The wine that he takes in the cup is not simply an accompaniment to the meal anymore, but it is actually the blood, the blood of the Lamb of God poured out to cover us, to avert God's wrath upon us and to cleanse us entirely, the blood of the new covenant. So just like the blood was necessary to shield the people from the destroyer going out as all of the firstborn in Egypt die, really the firstborn of God, as in the, the uh, Son of God in Jesus, is destroyed, is killed in the place of us, in order to cover us. His blood is poured out to free us from slavery. And it is interesting that in Luke's account here, there is no lamb actually mentioned. 
Now, it's likely that they, they would have had a lamb, but I think it's the point of the author Luke in this passage to not mention the lamb of the Passover at all. The most crucial element of the Passover. He mentions the bread. There's the wine. There were probably some bitter herbs, but the lamb is not mentioned because... Jesus is celebrating this on the eve of the Passover when he's about to become the Lamb of God hung on the cross in our place, the once and for all sacrifice. So Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper not to suggest that the Passover, not to say, hey, you guys were doing it wrong all this time. Can't believe I had to come all this time later and tell you how to do it. He's not saying that it was wrong. He's saying this is actually how it is fulfilled. This is how I fulfill the Passover. This is what, what it was always pointing to. And notice how Jesus keeps one of the crucial aspects of this meal, which is the element of remembrance. The Passover was meant to be a time of remembrance. They were meant to reflect upon it. And Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper? It is a meal of remembrance. We're to remember. And so Jesus keeps this. If, if we remember from in our passage, actually in Deuteronomy 16, in verse 3, we read in the second half after it talks about eating no unleavened, um, sorry, eating no leavened bread. It's the bread of affliction for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The point is to remember. And here, back in Luke 22, in instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus says in verse 19, Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And keep in mind, like we can very easily lose the significance of this if we forget that Jesus is celebrating the Passover. He's not taking something completely new. We always disconnect the Lord's Supper from the Passover. But Jesus here is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. They would have been used to every year saying, remember Yahweh, remember the God who freed you from Egypt. And Jesus comes along and takes the same bread and the same wine and says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way that Jesus before the Pharisees he says, before Abraham was, I am, which is like the same word for Yahweh. Jesus is saying, I mean, they knew what he was saying. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I'm God. And it is fascinating that this is just a bit of Bible trivia for you that I find it's just incredible. If you know the letter of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, in the letter of Jude, a tiny little letter, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he explains as he's trying to warn the people against false teaching and against succumbing to it. And he says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did you, can you believe? He doesn't say God who saved the people from the land of Egypt. He says, Jesus, who saved the people from the land of Egypt. Because Jesus is God. He's the God. There's one God, three persons, one God, sovereign over everything. Jesus is the one who freed the people from the land of Egypt. Because the point Jude is making is the point Jesus is making when he celebrates the Lord's Supper and says, Remember me. In remembering me, you will be remembering the God who freed you from the land of Egypt. You'll be remembering me. 
the one God who both frees the people from the slavery of the Egyptians and who frees people from slavery to sin. So Jesus is in no way contradicting the meal of Passover by celebrating it and trying to add a new lens to it. He's showing how it is fulfilled. He's refining it so that we see what it was always pointing to. Jesus is saying here, I am God. I'm both the lamb slain for the sin of the world. And I am the one who freed my people from Egypt. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the Messiah promised about. I am God who frees his people. So it's incredible to think just as Jesus in the back streets of Jerusalem, almost more than 2000 years ago, is celebrating the Passover meal. Just this intimate gathering, less people than are here today in this little place in the upper room, celebrating the Passover. And as this is happening, there is this cosmic heavenly Passover about to happen where once and for all, the sin of the world would be atoned for People would be covered with the blood of the Lamb. All of those who turn to Jesus would be freed from slavery. Jesus has stood in our place as the sacrificial Lamb. And His blood has been poured out to cleanse us from our sin. The blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb. You know, most of you would know Billy Graham the famous evangelist. And there is a story of Billy Graham in 1955 when he was invited to go to the University of Cambridge to uh, give three talks over three days to these students at the University of Cambridge, which was and uh, somewhat debatable depending on how you look at it, but it was certainly was one of the highest uh, institutions of the day as far as academic learning. And Billy Graham Uh, was reading these newspaper articles from these journalists when he was about to come over. And these journalists, these British journalists were kind of writing stories like, what is this, you know, backwater um, fundamentalist going to teach these learned students in Cambridge? We should be teaching him. He probably doesn't know anything. He's probably just going to talk about the uh, disgusting penal substitution of Jesus on the cross. What's the point of him coming out here? And Billy Graham was somewhat influenced by this. And so for the first two nights, he tried to give these scholarly academic talks before 2000 students at the University of Cambridge. And the strangest thing happened, which was very odd for Billy Graham at that time, was when he called people to respond, no one came forward and nothing happened. And then after the second night, he repented of his fear of man and he came back on the third night and all he did for 45 minutes was talk about the blood from Genesis to Revelation, from the blood of every sacrifice culminating in the blood of Christ, which covers us. And he spoke about the blood to these learned people and then he called the people to respond. And of those 2,000 people, 400 men and women got up and responded to the blood and said, I want to be covered with that blood. I want to be made white in that blood. My sins need that blood for forgiveness. The blood 
of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, is powerful. And just as I finish, I've been reading through the book of Revelation a lot recently because I'm hoping in several months' time we'll preach through the book of Revelation. So I've been trying to go through it a lot more. And I was just astounded really at uh, my studies this week, looking at the Passover lamb and then looking at the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is uh, not simply a book about the end of the world. The, the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revealing of God's great redemptive plan, which culminates in Jesus Christ. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's the book. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ to the world. And in the book of Revelation, this savior of the world is revealed most often as the lamb of God. Do you know in the New Testament, the word lamb is used a bit over 35 times and just a few of them are referring to like a literal lamb, like a shepherd um, bringing in a lamb. Most of them are referring to Christ as the lamb. And of those 35 odd times, 30 of them are in the book of Revelation. You really find it very infrequently elsewhere. But in the book of Revelation, how the savior of the world is revealed to us is as this lamb. This lamb, which makes total sense for people in the Jewish context and the Apostle John writing that book, steeped in this tradition of celebrating the Passover. And the book of Revelation reveals the saviour of the world as the lamb. It's the lamb who in Revelation 5, when no one is worthy to open up the scroll, the revealing of God's great plan. And finally, it's the lamb who comes and opens up the scroll. He's worthy to open up. It's the lamb in Revelation 6, who when we get this picture of God's wrath and people right at the end will cry for rocks and mountains to crush them, lest they stare for one moment longer at the one who is seated on the throne and the lamb. It's the lamb then in the very next chapter, in chapter seven, where we get this beautiful picture of the multitude of people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And they are standing before the lamb and praising, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It's the lamb whom we worship, the lamb who comes in our place, the Passover lamb to be sacrificed in our place. It's the lamb who we worship, the one who fulfills the Passover once and for all, that lamb, that helpless lamb, the, the fragile lamb, slaughtered, blood poured out. But the blood of the lamb not only covers us and averts God's wrath, but the blood of the lamb brings us in and washes us and makes us white so that for those who are covered by the blood of the lamb for us, there is no more wrath. There is none. It's all poured out because the blood of Christ has been shed once and for all. It's not like the Passover meal where every year we would have to celebrate it. It's done. It's finished. The blood covers us and we are made as white as snow in the blood of the lamb. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper every week to remind us of the significance of this. The blood of the new covenant poured out 
you know, it's so relieving to remember that there is no sin so great that the blood of Christ is not pure enough to cleanse entirely. That's how pure the blood of Christ is. That's how holy he is. There's no sin so great that cannot be washed completely. No individual in the history of world with all of the gruesome, horrific things that people have done and none of them are unable to be cleansed by this blood, by how pure it is.